Hi friends, welcome to the Friends of France podcast. In this safe space, we are favored in each episode with the presence of an expert guest from different fields and specialties as we learn about their life journeys, their successes, possible regrets, and realizations, their work, why they do what they do, and even their life outside of work. In here, we tear down common myths and misinformation with up-to-date, evidence-based science and data simplified for anyone to digest. We don't shy away from topics that can sometimes be polarizing or taboo. We normalize the humanization of healthcare and its workers, and we promote the importance of self-care and safeguarding your mental health. Please keep in mind that the conversations in this podcast are for educational and informational purposes only. They are not implied or intended to be a substitute for professional medical diagnosis, advice, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare providers regarding a medical condition. Are you ready? Let's go! Hi! Hello! How are you? Good, I think actually my camera might be a little dirty. No. <laughs> I'm in New York City. Oh, same, yes. I yes. think I knew that. I know, thank you so much for joining me today. Of course. It's such an honor to have you. Oh, that's uh, nice. I'm such a big fan of your work, and especially the past couple of years where your expertise is much needed in the world. If you could just first please introduce yourself to everybody. Yeah, so I'm Azza. I'm an immunologist by training, and so I have an undergraduate degree in biochemistry and immunology, a master's degree in the immunology of infectious diseases. I did a British one, so they're shorter, they're only a year, and then a PhD in immunology, mainly in autoimmunity, and then moved to Boston and ended up doing a very long postdoc for about seven years and I worked on food allergies and the immune system and it ended up being a microbiome project which was cool because it kind of I think put me in a position where I could sit a little bit in this field of the microbiome that sits between you know eastern and western medicine and so kind of got a taster of like how to bridge these two worlds together during the work that I did in the lab and then left the lab about three four years ago and I worked for a microbiome company called Seed for about two and a half years during the pandemic just kind of missed doing immunology and wanted to dive a little bit deeper into mechanism and, and immunotherapy. And so I've been working for an immunotherapy company that kind of has a new technology, which is if a cancer mainly is the application, but hopefully the applications will be broader once we kind of prove that it works in cancer, then it can be used for other disease models. But yeah, so in a nutshell, that's what I do. I try to understand how we can use the immune system to prevent disease. That's amazing. And that'll be the breadth of our conversation today too. But I just want to ask, I mean, you know, from undergrad to your master's to your doctoral and then to your postdoc did you always want to venture into this field of immunology like when you were younger was it like oh i want to know how i want to be an immunologist when yes. I <laughs> um no so it was actually to be honest with you it was complete luck a lot of it and randomness i think it was originally i wanted to be a dentist because my mom was a dentist my grandfather had been a dentist and so i got it into my head pretty early that that's what i wanted to do ended up getting an offer for dentistry but i didn't get the grades and so last minute i just remember having this conversation with my family and being like what's the hardest module in dentistry and kept hearing back from dentists that immunology wasn't easy. I, we can talk about it, but a lot of people are like, you know, it's very jargony. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So in my head, I started doing immunology as a pivot, thinking that at some point I would then reapply to dentistry once I was in the university, but ended up really liking immunology. I actually never ended up applying for dentistry again. Yeah, everything just kind of happened. It fell into place. So at the end of my undergraduate degree, I did a, a placement in an immunology lab in a lupus lab decided that I wasn't done with the research there and would love to research more, did the master's and then went back to lupus for my PhD. It was good, did the PhD, really enjoyed the research and then thought maybe I'd like to live somewhere that spoke English that wasn't the UK and that's how I ended up in, in the US. <laughs> like such a, such a snobby Londoner, I was like, um, I want to live in the UK. I want I, If it's not London, I don't want to live anywhere else, which is oh pretty God. silly. Um, moved to the US and that's how I ended up in Boston for seven years and I've been in the US since. There we go. Obviously, it's a very, very watered down version, but I remember learning some immunology for like nursing school and then for general biology for, for my pre-medical requirements. I'm like, this is such a hard topic. 
Yeah. It's like, do I have to know all of this? Yeah. Also, the answer to that is no, because everybody just knows a lot about what they know about, right? Like what their research is on. But it's just very jargony because it's all these like CD3, CD4, CD8s, and then people get really, you know, confused by it all. But there are like concepts to it that I think that particularly during COVID, I mean, it's cool now. Most people know what a T cell and an antibody is, right? And in the past, that wasn't the case. There's ways of like distilling it down. And I think the problem with immunology in general, and the reason why there's a lot of misinformation around it, is that I think immunologists feel like if they break down and distill the message too much, then they lose the accuracy, right, of of the message. And because things are so context dependent. And so it's generally, I think, immunologists might have strayed away from like being like, oh, explaining it to the mainstream. But I think that in the last few years, that's changed. I think that it definitely has changed. There's ways of communicating it and communicating the nuance to people and helping them kind of understand how much we do know about it. It's not just this gray box of question marks. And I think also just because it feels like ever evolving, like every single day, every yeah. single second, right? So as the expert of the field, I wanted to ask you to lay it out for the general public. What is the field of immunology? Like what's the main premise behind this very complicated field? Yeah. So immunology in a nutshell is understanding what the immune system is. And the immune system is the system that you have in place to prevent disease. So when something say flies into your nose or like flies into your mouth or through any opening in your body, it's able to tell the difference between this is good, it can stay, this is bad, and it cannot stay, right? Good would be food, for example, you know, like our immune systems aren't always attacking food, they know the difference between what's good and bad. And so in general, the purpose and the point of the immune system is to prevent disease. That's how we think of it. It's interesting, because in the past, a lot of people with this definition would say uh, the immune system is there to keep you healthy. Like that's the way that a lot of people would define it. But I think now we acknowledge that there's no one size fits all signature for health. And like, what is the meaning of health in general? What's healthy for one person might not be for for someone else. So in a nutshell, that's what it is. It's the practice of understanding the immune system and how it can prevent or even cause diseases in some cases. Yeah. Even then, it's like, again, it's such a complex topic, right? I mean, even within the realm of the immune system and the concept of immunity, we have like passive immunity and hard immunity and this immunity, right? What do you think is the bread and butter of your work? I mean, I know your research was also like in the microbiome, right? that we have been seeing has a lot of implications in the whole body, especially, I mean, I'm very into skincare, so like, yeah, so hearing the world of dermatology, right? Talking yeah, about yeah. The microbiome is actually very vital to having a very healthy skin barrier and stuff like that. But what do you think is the most common topics that you see or hear or read within this whole field of the immune system? Yeah, there's a lot. I don't think that's an easy way. I'd love to answer that question in an easy way. But I, I would say that like my interest has always been understanding T-cells. But like in general, T-cells is where my focus is. The cells that I was always most interested in actually are regulatory T-cells. And these are a very small subset of T-cells that are responsible for telling the immune system to calm down. So they're really good at inhibiting the immune system. Because if you have, for example an inflammation that happens to something, you need cells that will then emerge to say, all right, this thing has now been cleared from the system, stop attacking it and sending those signals to the immune system to say, enough, you're done, right? And in the cases of things like autoimmune diseases or allergies even, you get hyperactivity of the immune system where it's misfiring or hitting targets that it shouldn't be be hitting. And so there's been like a lot of work done in this field over the last couple of decades. And we understand now that in the same way where like, if you think of it like a balance, like a a swing, that's what I mean, a swing. Like Um, like, like you think of it this way, where if you get like an infectious disease or you get, say COVID, for example, your immune system will attack, attack, attack and lean towards this side. But once that thing is cleared from your system, the immune system needs to come back into balance in the middle. And if it does not, it will then tilt into onto the right side, where then it'll start to attack things that it shouldn't be attacking like we discussed. And that concept is called tolerance. It's how trying to understand how it is that the immune system tells itself what to tolerate and what not to tolerate. And so regulatory T cells sit in the middle of that balance where they're signaling to the immune system, stop, you've attacked enough, there's no need to attack more. Or T regs will like kind of 
subside and say, okay, you need to keep attacking this thing that's in the system. And so there's like a lot of work being done to understand this little system here of tolerance and, and balance. And I am biased because I love T-cells in general, because I think they're just very cool and very powerful. And for anyone interested, I actually today posted a very cool video of a T-cell attacking a cancer yeah. cell. So I'm like, yeah. that's why I find them so interesting because they're, they're just so violent and they just go in and specific <laughs> and just take out, you know, what they want to take out. Yeah, well, basically, they have like a mind of its own, right? So, so smart. And yeah. I'm so glad that since COVID started, people have gone to an appreciation of T-cells more, right? Like before, we were thinking of like antibodies, antibodies, like vaccines, so antibodies, antibodies. But now people, you'll hear people saying, oh, but what about the T-cells? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I will say that I think that something that I will give credit for a little bit, because it's with immunology or like most scientific fields, we're only as good as the techniques that we have, right? And so T-cells are just a little trickier to look at. And we can talk about why, but they're just, they're not as easy as antibodies to look at, which is why when it comes to infectious disease, there may have always been an over-focus on like antibodies in terms of protection, because it's easy to just like bleed someone and look at what antibodies they have in their serum. But with T-cells, you just need way more steps and like more specialty. And I think that's why in terms of, you know, mainstream technique, a lot of people may have shied away from understanding T-cells because they're just harder to look at and therefore more expensive to look at. Yeah, and I think that's what we've seen in science, right, too, like within the past few years is certain themes of thinking that people were afraid to think of before, you know, like viruses and this and that. And, and then suddenly we're like in the world where it's all we're talking about now, right? Virus, virus, virus. But... You know, all of these things that we know now are like a culmination of great minds and thinking and experiments from years, years ago. And I think one of the things I'm very curious about is, as an immunologist, you know, we deal with the immune system and obviously pathogens as well, you know, extraneous and foreign substances outside of the human body. And I send this in our question list, but let's say you're sitting in the beach and you suddenly think of, oh, there's a critter in the waters. And uh, as an immunologist, I want to study its potential implications of disease and human beings. How does that go from like the mind to the lab into paper? Because you know, I've done research on like cardiology, but cardiology is like based on past and the vascular procedures that we've been already having, right? It's already yeah. long known diseases that we've known. But for immunologists, like I said earlier, something new every day. What if yeah. there's something new in your brain and you, how does that translate to, oh, it's printed out in the paper. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a good question. It's a good question. So I think, first of all, a lot of people will have prior expertise, right? So for example, there will be labs that are like animal model labs, right? Where they focus on like mice models. And so that's usually, I think, one of the first decisions that immunologists will make is that, do I want to do mouse models or do I want to look at PBMCs as in like human blood cells? And that answering that question will depend on the type of disease because, you know, there are some diseases that don't have a good mouse, like an animal model. For example, lupus, it's way too complicated. We have mice models that are similar to certain mechanisms. So if you're interested in a type of lupus that impacts the skin, we have a good mouse model for that. We have a good mouse model for like lupus nephritis, but we don't have a good mouse model for the overarching all of the different systems together. And so that's why a lot of like lupus research, you'll see many, many labs will have to incorporate human research into what they're doing. And so they'll have to have access to a clinic that's giving them blood samples from lupus patients. And so say you're lying on the beach and you have an idea and you're like, I want to explore what the, these critters in the water are doing if they're causing disease. What you could do is Go back to your lab, take the chrysis, right? Purify them and either inject them into the mice. I mean, before you make that decision, you'd think about, well, how would these chrysis infect humans, right? And then that would be how you would design your experiments for infection. And then you would infect maybe the animal. And after a few days, if you wanted to look at the innate immune response, which is immediate, you would look at the animal within a few hours or within like a day or two. However, if you're more interested in adaptive immunity or like T cells or B cells, that can take a few more days or like weeks even. So that might have to be a longer experiment that you plan over three weeks or even a month. And so that's how you make those decisions as to like, what model am I going to use? And then once you decide on the model, before you start the experiment, you have to formulate a hypothesis, right? You have to say, okay, so I'm going to propose that this critter does cause this disease. Now, how am I going to go about testing it? And how am 
am I going to answer those questions? And after you do your experiments, you write your paper and you say, I proved my hypothesis or actually I found the opposite to what my hypothesis was. And you write up your findings and you submit them to peer review. And peer review is a very, very important part of not just immunology, but any basic research, you know, like, I think that's one thing that I feel quite passionately about, like after the pandemic in the last few years, is that talk is cheap, right? Anybody can make a proposal or come up with an idea, but put your money where your mouth is, go and run the experiment and submit that data for peer review and publish and then show that your results are working because we all know that scientists have big egos. So if they have a finding that is valid, I mean, I'm present company, probably not (laughs) excluded, but if you have an idea that you think is real and true and is going to help people, you're going to go and run the experiment and find the data, submit it to peer review make it as good as it can be, clean it up, and then have it published so that other people all around the world can build on your work. To bring it back to your point about misinformation, people that just record YouTube videos, it's just so cheap. It's like, you know, like, instead of wasting the last few years just recording YouTube video after YouTube video, why don't you go fundraise, especially when it's millionaires, right? It's these really wealthy people. You're like, go fund a lab to test your hypothesis so that you can prove that it works. Because if you're not doing that to me, then you're just kind of chasing the fame of it and you know that you're wrong or you ju- you're just so out of your depth there's a bit of arrogance in there that you think yeah. that you could be but anyway that's a different topic but I just wanted to loop it back to what you were saying yeah, about no, misinformation yeah. in general like it's run the data is kind of how I feel about it don't just speak into a camera yeah, yeah. someone said YouTube scientists in data <laughs> yeah exactly it's no longer October but let me tell you a horror story I was working bedside as a nurse. 12 hour shifts, 12,000 to 15,000 steps per night, always exposed to dripping blood, pee, and other fluids. And guess what? I was wearing skateboarding shoes for almost a year. Because my feet were killing me, I switched to more comfortable sneakers but had to go through three pairs because I would find new stains after shifts. And over time, as the pandemic came, I was too exhausted to think about my feet or even changing my footwear. I was then introduced to Clove, and I no longer had to do the thinking. To support the steps of those who dedicate their lives to caring for others, Clove collaborated with healthcare professionals and innovative designers to create a shoe that prioritizes the needs of those in the front line. These are sneakers designed for healthcare. They already did the thinking. Easy to clean and fluid repellent, I no longer have to worry about those red streaks or pea-soaked socks since I use the same wipes at work to remove every stain. Just this summer, one of my patients unexpectedly bled from the radial artery access site and made a pool in my brilliant whites on the floor. A few swipes with the purple wipes, all clean and with no damage. Plus being squeak free, I no longer have to worry about waking up a sleeping patient. Layered with comfort, sore toes are no longer my problem since the shoes are now upgraded with double the cushioning, 50% more arch support, and a perfect heel pad. On top of this, the grippiest outsole also allows for a fluid channel technology while maintaining super secure footing. And yes, it's 100% cruelty free and vegan. I love all of my clove shoes and I hope that you can get ready to also step into your perfect pair. Use code FRANZ, that's F-R-A-N-Z, or visit goclove.com slash friends for 15% off your first pair of clove shoes at checkout. I am no stranger to seeing patients that can't get the care they need because they can't afford it. Even if they get a medical recommendation that will help them, oftentimes, medication costs are so high it's totally out of reach, or they would have to choose between feeding their family or paying rent in order to get the medication, so people have to go without. After living through a pandemic, on some level, we all know the healthcare system in the United States is broken. That is why I am happy to see that mission-driven businesses are now taking an interest in the problem because it's not getting solved fast enough. Better Remedies is one of those companies doing something to really meaningfully help people with medical expenses, in particular, getting their medications. Better makes over-the-counter medication, think pain, gas, cough and flu, sleep, all the essentials for your medicine cabinet. For every box of Better Remedies sold, they cover the cost of someone's life-saving medication for a month. And this is someone who would otherwise have to choose between food, rent, gas to get to work, or otherwise caring for themselves or their family. It is such an easy switch to make. You get the same great relief you need for 10% less than other big name brands, and someone who doesn't have the access to their meds will get the help they need. In general, it's good to know the active ingredients you need for your symptoms rather than just buying a big name brand. It'll save you money, and because active ingredients are FDA regulated, you'll still be getting the results you need. Plus, if you buy from Better, you are also helping someone else in a big way too. It's putting your headaches, farts, and insomnia to work. And that's something we can all feel better about. 
I've been buying my Better Remedies products at Walmart at any time I need to stock up. And you can do the same. Everything is priced about 10% less than the big brands, works just as well, and makes an impact on something that is really important and that I am personally very passionate about. Make the switch next time you need relief. You'll feel better and be doing some good. Speaking of this misinformation, I mean, there's always been a field of misinformation on social media. We see in our WhatsApp groups, Facebook chain messages, right? And all of a sudden, 2020, well, obviously starting 2019, the the height of the pandemic, so much things are flooding timelines and news, like news and news and news after news. And obviously COVID, but I think the greater theme is viruses, right? And, yeah. You know, we've been hearing about the Lange virus now too, and the monkeypox virus, and the polio virus in the wastewater. I wanted to take some simple points first. You know, I stumbled upon this Reddit post and someone was asking, what is a virus? Is it dead? Is it alive? It's not a bacteria. Is it a cousin of a bacteria? And I, I was laughing. I was like, such a cute question. You know, it's as the immunologist, who is the expert in the immune system, and, you know, these foreign substances and agents who threaten our, you know, protection. What are viruses? And what is the mechanism that they cause disease? The yeah. Yeah. It's actually a very good question because I think if people understood well, a lot of people understood like viruses and the way that they work, they would likely be way less fear about vaccines in general because they just mimic pretty much what they do, like vi viral vaccines. And so a virus is, in terms of whether they're dead or alive, I think virologists would say to you that they are not, they're not alive, right? Because they hijack a cell. So viruses are probably the simplest of like germs that you'll find out there. They're actually genetic material that are just covered in a protein. And the reason why there's debate about whether they're even alive is because if you breathe in a virus, right, a virus can't exist, it can't live just out in the world on a surface or whatever, without some form of cells that it can hijack in terms of long term. And so what they do is, for example, in the case of COVID or SARS-CoV-2, the virus, you breathe it in, and then the virus itself will hijack your cells, it will go into your cells. And then it will hijack things like your ribosomes, and it will force them to make its own mRNA and say, make more of me. Okay, and then these cells become like, ghost kind of parasitic cells that are just like operating to like serve the virus and then after the cell makes more of the virus you then get like a burst of like variants or of the virus and then it goes on to infect other cells so that's why like viruses can't really like exist out of the context of them being inside of like a cell host that it can like yeah. hijack and say like yeah. that it can control and so that's where they kind of differ from bacteria like bacteria people will tell you are alive because they're larger they're more complex they can yeah. exist outside of the human body they can reproduce outside of the human body in soil for example or in water or inside of our own bodies i mean that's what a lot of our microbiome is is bacteria <laughs> that live freely and interact with it whereas viruses need cell hosts in order to reproduce and continue to infect yeah, and I, I guess that's why a lot of people have so many questions about it. It's such a complex topic, right? And there's so many viruses as well. And I guess like even bacteria, we have antibiotics. I mean, with viruses, we have antiretrovirals, but it's still such a, such a long road to like treatment and stuff like that, right? And I think one common question that was sent in my DMs when I started promoting the virus is, yes, we have lists and lists of viruses that we've seen for centuries and years. But I think their main question was, when it comes to pandemics and plagues, like, what makes these viruses, like SARS-CoV-2, or even, like, the Black Plague, you know, the COVID-18, like, what is the difference in these viruses that causes such mass casualties yeah. that we don't really see compared to like the seasonal heat in the yeah. sense it takes over the world. What's so different about Yeah, so for example, with this with this pandemic, with COVID, the reason why there was panic, the reason why we ended up having to lock down and there was a lot of fear around it and we we hadn't seen that within our lifetime is for a, a couple of reasons. First of all, SARS-CoV-2 was a new virus. So we had never really seen this specific virus. There are lots of viruses that we're aware of, like even, you know, monkeypox that's all over the news now. That's something that's been on and off for a few, like, 
for a long time. Like we understand it to some level. There's some papers around it. There are some people that are experts in it. But SARS-CoV-2 was a new virus. So we'd never encountered it before. So we weren't sure exactly what the mechanism of it was. So reason number one why there was panic was mainly realizing that there could be asymptomatic transmission. Because with a lot of viruses, you don't see transmission without symptoms. So for example, Ebola, right? By the time you're like infectious, you're fully symptomatic. So it's really easy from like a society perspective to isolate people immediately when they have Ebola. That's why it doesn't spread as fast as SARS-CoV-2 because the minute that you, you're infectious, you're showing symptoms and you're probably at home because you can't even get up because it, the symptoms are so bad. Whereas with SARS-CoV-2, we had asymptomatic transmission. There was like a period of a couple of days where people, you were seeing transmission in the community, even though people didn't appear to be as symptomatic as you'd expect. The other reason why there was a lot of panic about it was how quickly it was spreading. That's something else. I mean, this is all related to R, which I, I'm not going to try to explain simply <laughs> on, on the slide, but it's all like the R value was just something that was definitely concerning because we were seeing the spread of it like so fast and we were seeing it spread from country to country really fast. And that was definitely a red flag and concerning because again, with a lot of other viruses, for example, like Ebola, we've managed to, to contain it to some degree. But the kind of final big reason why COVID, it does continue to be a problem is because of long COVID. Like we are aware that there's, and we've always been aware that there's like post-infectious symptoms, right? You can get other viruses or bacteria, you clear them or parasites even, right? But then you're like, for the next year or two after, you're seeing symptoms that are even neurological symptoms similar to COVID, but not at this level, right? Like with COVID, we were seeing, I mean, I think at one point it was 30% of people, even after their PCRs were negative and there wasn't any virus in their system, were still continuing to experience symptoms long-term. And we just didn't have time on our hands, right? There were a lot of people, I think, that were saying things like, why don't we know? Why don't the scientists know more? And I'm like, give them time. It's only been six months, like, you know? And yeah. I think that added with, in all honesty, really terrible communication. And I think everybody appreciates this. It wasn't just bad communication from like the media, right? We can sit and play this game of shitting on the media and how bad they are at communicating scientific concepts, but governments were bad at it as well. They were like flip-flopping, people were really confused. And I think that like, it was just, there wasn't a general understanding that we needed time to happen a little bit first because we couldn't say how long immunity lasted without letting time happen. We couldn't say how long long COVID was gonna last in people without letting time happen or how infectious people were without allowing time to happen. And I think that, added to geopolitics and like a whole bunch of other stuff just caused yes. like this full explosion. And I think yes. the misinformation is continuing because people don't understand or they're not really like there's a lot of people who still think they're conflating their like distrust of government and politics with how nuanced science is. And they're like, give me an answer, yes or no. And you're like, well, that's just not how it works, right? There's context. Yes there's nuance that's i think that that's why covid in particular was a really big problem compared to other yeah. other viruses yeah. that we see it was mainly yeah. those three reasons yeah it's like the amplification media and then there's this guideline and then there's another guideline yeah like just the panic in everybody and at the same time given that it it is a novel coronavirus right even us when we were working like the hospital like we have no idea what's going on like, yeah we have no idea what to expect like I, I remember the our train of thought throughout the month. We were like, "It's contact. Oh no, it's airborne. Oh, it's causing respiratory arrest. Oh no, no, no it's causing micro blood clots. Oh no, no, it's a cytokine storm." Like, yeah. Like, and then it's like multi-organism. I'm like, "What's going on?" So yeah. I guess yeah. it's like the mixture of everything going on, right? But I think we reach a point. I mean, being in New York City, where I think. A huge part of the population is over with COVID, right? Yeah, yeah. Over with COVID, like, I don't know if you take the subway, but you go in the subway, like, yeah. no one's wearing masks. Anymore, yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. And, you know, everyone wants COVID to end, but here and there with here, there's a new variant. There's a new sub-variant. How, and I think, I guess this is the expertise to, like, explain it for the general public, is how do variants and sub-variants arise from the same virus? Like, yeah. we can't kill this damn <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. going on. Yeah. yeah. So, so what's interesting is actually that, like, coronaviruses don't mutate as fast as other viruses do, right? And actually, they do have this cool thing. I'll give them credit here. Well, they have this cool thing that they produce an enzyme where, like, 
when they're reproducing, if they accidentally make a mutation, right, they do have a back button, they make an enzyme that allows them to go back to like fix that. And so mutations are generally at a slower rate than what you see with like, for example, the influenzas, right, they mutate really, really fast. But the thing about variants, it goes back to the question around whether they're alive or not. Because if you think about it, viruses have to be inside cells in order to reproduce. So viruses mutate. They all mutate. It's it's something that they do. Most of their mutations don't mean anything phenotypically. It doesn't mean that they'll be more like trans, more transmissible or more virulent. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's a phenotype translation. But the problem is, is that even if they have a really low mutation rate, the more time that you buy them to sit around in human cells and hang out, the more likely you are to see mutations that do matter. And that's why we are seeing the emergence of like all of these variants. It's because at this point, we sadly have reached a point in the pandemic where we don't have enough people vaccinated, right? We don't have enough people vaccinated. The pandemic is out of control, meaning that like, we've got a ton of people that are just getting it. We're seeing mutations like, for example, Omicron, which is really infectious, so infectious that you could have had COVID before and been vaccinated and you m- might still be out on your fl- on the floor with it. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. I, I, I actually had it twice. It's not. I have <laughs> You said, I was completely and in fairness I was completely asymptomatic the second time I just had a I had a child cough in my face and that's how I I got it but I was completely asymptomatic how was yours was it was it pretty brutal oh my gosh I was I just arrived at work for me well the first time was back in September of 2020 so before the vaccines oh my gosh I thought I was gonna die I was like I can't breathe my oxygen was like 87 the rest days I was like should I go to the emergency room now and then the second time I got it was I think the Delta variant. I got every letter of the Greek oh, alphabet. So. Yeah, yeah. And the second time was just a fever and just sore throat. And then the third one was Omicron. I was knocked out for like, I don't know, I think a week. Yeah, Omicron was bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was not. And it, because it had been a while from my shot, the, when I... I mean, it was the first time I got COVID, actually. It was with Omicron. And it had been a while from my, like, last shot from my booster. And so the first three days were just awful. Chills, headache, nausea. And then it was interesting. Around day three, like, most of my symptoms switched off. I think, like, my immunity kicked in after a few days. It just took a while. But, yeah, so because we have the pandemic kind of out of control, we're buying lots of time for this virus to linger. And that's why we're seeing mutations emerge. And, you know, at this point, who knows what mutations we have? Because I think... As you said, a lot of the world has decided that COVID is no longer a problem. And so, yeah. Yep. And I, I think aside from the variants and the sub-variants, like I said earlier, it's like we're hearing something new every day, right? Well, almost like, you hear the monkeypox, you hear the lung virus, you hear polio and this and that. And I think a big question within the online forums are, and I guess we don't know the exact answer, and I'm not sure if we have the data, it's still ongoing, but do you think COVID-19 has made us more susceptible to the rise of other viruses that we probably would not have been as affected as before? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know whether the evidence supports that. I don't know whether the evidence supports that there's something physiological that's happening that's making us more susceptible. I think there's heightened awareness now. I think that everybody is after like two or three years of a pandemic, everyone is just very aware of the fact that these viruses do exist and they do happen because monkeypox is a good example of that, of like, we've had outbreaks before in, in the last few years. And I just think most people weren't really paying attention or just don't read those those papers. Whereas now that it's making it onto like the front page because there's general like interest. I think that the problem is actually bigger and it does relate to another field that is also tarred with a lot of misinformation, climate change. I think this is something else where as we start to disturb ecosystems through like deforestation, through, um, you know, mining, as those are increasing, we're starting to disturb ecosystems that we should not be disturbing. And that is why we're seeing this jump over of more zoonoses. So these are like uh, viruses, for example, that are able to cause diseases in humans, because a lot of them just, just don't. But that's why we're seeing an emergence of more maybe like questionable viruses that are able to cause diseases in humans. It's because through through a lot of these practices that we do that are contributing to climate change, it's also leading to the emergence of more and more viruses that can cause disease. And I think that that's the main point here that also gets missed. Yeah. But, you know, like climate change activists have been screaming about this, and virologists for like a really, really long time. I mean, 
the US government at one point, and I think now it's back, has an entire team that's dedicated to going out there and mining for viruses that could potentially be a problem as we like reach into these ecosystems. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is why awareness is so important too, right? Like spreading information through social media. And there's so much dark things that happen in social media during the pandemic, but there's also like great things that, that came out of it, right? It's like people who have been like educated and changed topics doing free education uh, online, like what you're doing right now, you know, yeah. this life. And, and I think a crux of topic also is of awareness and what you talked about too is vaccines, you know. I mean, pediatric clinics are plastered with it. Every year we get the flu vaccine. And obviously there's different types of vaccines and different types of immunization. For the general public, what exactly are vaccines in the general sense? And how do they give us immunity? And do they give us a microchip? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all very good questions, Christian. <laughs> um, especially the last one. Um, um, okay, so I think to answer that question, we have to take a step back and think about how the immune system responds to infection in general. And so, for example, you have, like we, we said before, you have two kinds of areas of your immune system. You have the innate immune system, which is non-specific and immediate. So if something flies in, which happens all the time, stuff flies into your nose, for example, or like at any opening in your body, the innate immune system is, is non-specific. It's patrolling the body and it will see whatever has entered and it will say, hold on, this thing shouldn't be in the body. Punch, punch, punch. Let's get it out. It sounds like a very basic system, but it's actually incredibly effective because the majority of us don't get sick the majority of the time, right? And so the innate immune system is, it works all the time, it's excellent in children, it's really good at like preventing infections. However, what happens is that on occasion, the innate immune system will encounter something that is just going to overwhelm it, that is too much for it. And SARS-CoV-2 is one example, you know, other infectious diseases that we vaccinate for, like polio, are other examples of it where they see this thing, they're punching, 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 they can't clear it, they're recruiting their friends, punching, punching, this thing is still not going away. They're starting, you're starting to get symptoms, you're getting inflammation, then you're making mucus so you can physically push this thing out, you know, like whether it's through your eyes or your nose, it's still not able to get it out. So what happens around day three is that the innate immune system says, all right, we're overwhelmed, right? So what it will do is that it will grab a physical chunk of the offender and it will run to your lymph nodes where you have the adaptive immune system, that second part. And these are the bad boys of the immune system. And now T cells and B cells is, is in a nutshell. I mean, they're way more complicated, but let's just reduce it to this. Um, so you have the T cells and B cells that are hanging out in your lymph nodes. And then these innate cells run up to them and they say, hey, guys, this thing is in the body and we cannot get it out. Start training. And so B cells and T cells will then make more of themselves specific to the thing that's being presented to them. And after a few days, they'll get dispatched. They'll rush out to the scene. B cells make antibodies that attach themselves to any bits of the infection that's outside of a cell lingering around. And your T cells will nuke the cells that are infected. Again, I have a very good video on that I posted today of how T cells do that. But Watch they literally, it. they're very specific. They don't even hit healthy bystander cells. They go in and they, they're like, this cell is infected. I'm going to take it out. And so the good thing about activating B and T cells, they don't always get activated. But when they do, not only are they specific and they're excellent and they're like special ops and they'll, they'll clear out the infection, but they come with memory, meaning that if you ever encounter that issue again, you don't have to go through that entire process of about five days of getting sick you already have memory responses, which is the B and T cells sitting in your system. And so what I just described is the premise to what vaccines are. It's that there is nothing better than showing your immune system the thing itself. And so what vaccines are is that there'll be like a, a bunch of antigens or one antigen. So instead of getting the whole virus or and getting sick and causing disease, scientists will look at what is the aspect of the infection that's actually causing memory. And then they'll just harness that and put that in a vaccine. And then you get it in a controlled setting in a clinic so you can mount those responses. And so it's the same argument like when people say, well, you know, why can't I use vitamins or supplements as a prevention instead of vaccines? And it's like, because there's nothing better than showing your immune system the thing. You're not going to make 
T cells and B cells specific to the thing without showing it to them. You can show them whatever you want, but they're not going to generate those memory responses. And so that's what vaccines are across the board. Sometimes they're the whole virus or bacteria inactivated. So they're heat killed or something and put in. Sometimes that doesn't work. Like if you kill the, the virus or the bacteria, the immune system isn't going to respond to it. So you need like live. So that's where like there are some techniques that are like the adenovirus where you make the protein once it's injected and then the immune system will recognize the vaccinated cell as an infected cell, nuke it, and then go and activate T and B cells. But there's a lot of misinformation, like you said, around it. Like people will say, vaccines change your immune system. No, they don't. Your immune system would rather see that thing in a vaccine than you walking around a town and then get, catching a virus and then getting really sick and then maybe not even mounting memory responses, which like 20% yeah. of people don't mount. And so that's what vaccines are. And to your point, it, it's, I think, really tragic that we're seeing the reemergence of things like polio, because people don't want to vaccinate because there's so much misinformation post pandemic. I mean, this is something that we do not want to play with. Like I literally grew up with a family friend who did not have access to the polio vaccine in Sudan and grew up disabled in one leg for the rest of her life because she got polio and then it caused disability. And so it caused paralysis in one of her legs. And so I think that this is one thing that we really need to focus more on is for people to understand what vaccines are and what the purpose is so that we don't see the reemergence of things that shouldn't be a problem like polio. Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, that's why accurate and sound information is life-saving. And this information can literally cost lives, right? Or the quality of lives of many. And even that no matter how beautiful you explain all of that, there's still a group of people who, who will not listen to any of that, right? And I think specifically for COVID-19, the vaccines, right? It became such a bipartisan issue. It became such a religious and political issue. But the anti-vax movement has been around very before COVID-19. Yeah. We've seen this in the flu vaccines, we've yeah. seen this in other vaccines. And I think... I want to delve specifically quickly into the COVID-19 vaccines, the anti-vaccine movement, where one of the biggest premises that they have is the concept of natural immunity. Mm -hmm. what, and I think you touched upon this already, but what's the point of me getting a vaccine when I could just catch it and uh, mount an immune yeah. to it? And it's yeah. much stronger than something that you put in my shoulder, right? Yeah. As the expert of the immunology of the immune system, what is your take on that? Um, it's very, very ragey. Because all, <laughs> Im all immunity is natural immunity. All of it is. There's no such thing as unnatural immunity. Your, your immune system doesn't get confused. It knows what it's mounting immune responses to. The problem with diseases is that they're far too unpredictable, right? Like one person will get one dose, another person will get another dose. One per you know, like you can't predict how much your exposure will be. And that means that you see in, like huge variability in terms of memory responses. I mean, I don't think that like it would be right or fair to say that you can't get memory responses from catching the disease. The point is, is that the memory responses are just really unpredictable. And not only that, it's got survivorship bias, right? Like there's, there's literal survivor bias. Like people who are living are living to say, oh, now I have natural immunity. But like there's a lot of people that didn't survive the pandemic. And I just think it all wraps into a, this misinformation of like natural is better. And that is just like not the case. It's something, you know, even like, with, you know, with the skincare world, you see it all the time with like holistic wellness. Like there's yeah. just this thinking that like natural is always better. It yeah. is in some cases, right? And and in some cases it has its a time and a place and it's, mm -hmm. it's important. But when it comes to things like infectious diseases that are killing people, it's just a little bit more complicated than that. It's not yeah. as simple as like, let's go catch the disease and then we'll get memory responses. That's just not what the data is showing. Having worked as a nurse in cardiac surgery recovery and outpatient interventional cardiology, I learned that listening is a vital part of the field. But beyond listening to what patients say, it's also important to hear what they don't say. And many times, you can hear this in the stillness and quietness of the room as their chest thumps and rhythms that can range from normalcy to urgency. A person's heartbeat is not only a sign of life, but also a sign of its quality. According to the CDC, arrhythmias, or abnormal heart sounds, have an expected prevalence of about 1.5% in the general population, with atrial fibrillation being the most common. 
This is why it is so important that we can adequately hear and detect heart and even lung sounds that may be detrimental to human life. ECHO provides smart digital stethoscopes, such as the 3M Letman Core Digital Stethoscope, that help you check for signs of heart and lung disease in seconds during physical exams with unprecedented enhanced stethoscope sound and automated detection. This is all through a quick pairing with your mobile device. This is made possible by features such as having up to 40 times amplification, active noise cancellation, wireless listening, auto-triggered heart murmur and atrial fibrillation detection, and real-time visualization of sound and ECG that you can share as a consult with a trusted colleague or specialist. Every patient encounter deserves exceptional care. Hear clearly and care confidently with ECHO. The virtual space is flooded with so many different brands, resources, and gears made for healthcare workers from all disciplines. From scrubs to pins and even compression socks, it can truly get overwhelming trying to find the best product fit for you. Links to these items can get lost, and the list can get so long that you forget what you actually needed to purchase for your next work shift. This is why I am so grateful to partner with Lumify, the community marketplace for healthcare workers all in one app. Finding the brands you love, discovering new tools, and accessing your resources and communities shouldn't be difficult. Instead of going to 50 different websites to access what you need, you can find it all on Lumify, where over 200 brands, organizations, and resources are united with one goal, to support healthcare workers. As a nurse-founded company, Lumify believes that all healthcare professionals deserve a trusting and supportive community of their peers. In Lumify, you can easily communicate with your peers to trade advice, share product recommendations, and discuss what resources are best to support you. You can even earn Lumify points on every purchase you complete, which you can save for product discounts. Whether it's mental health resources, or fluid-resistant shoes, hi Clove, or stethoscopes, hi Echo, or podcasts, welcome to Friends of France, Lumify is trusted by over 75,000 healthcare professionals at the bedside and beyond, including myself. Enter this new healthcare ecosystem where you can get 10% off using the code LUMIFYFRANZ, that's L-U-M-I-F-Y-F-R-A-N-Z, at LUMIFYCARE.com or the Lumify app available for download on iOS devices. It's a one-stop shop, and I hope you drop by. And this whole millions and millions movement, um, and by millions, I mean like dollars, this million, billion dollar movement, anti-vax movement, has preyed on so many people. And uh, we've seen like scattered all throughout the space and all throughout the globe. And again, it's cost lives and uh, have caused people to lose faith in uh, science and uh, literature. As an expert in immunology, what would be your message to those who are bearing resistance and hesitancy to vaccines that we have seen has saved lives. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the sad thing about vaccines, which I think anti-vaxxers have always preyed upon, and I just want to be clear about one thing, just to like, as in be fair about, like when I personally, or I think when you're using the term anti-vaxxers, we're talking about people who are like bankrolled to spread misinformation. Yeah. And yeah. even in the face of being presented with data, we'll still continue to push that same misinformation mm -hmm. because they're making money out of it, right? Yeah. So not yeah. the people that are like vaccine skeptic and then are yeah. falling for these people. So when it comes to anti-vaxxers, right, the one thing that they have on their side is the problem with prevention in general is that when it works, nothing happens. And I think that that's why it makes people really uncomfortable is that you have done all this stuff and then nothing's happening. But that's the point is that like it's working. And so, you know, as, as human beings in general and in healthcare, people have always struggled with prevention. Like it's not something new. It's also something that I think maybe people, it just, there wasn't a lot of focus on the importance of it, but that is changing. And so I think the problem is that anti-vaxxers will prey on the same playbook. They know to go for the fertility, even though there is no data to support. Like, if you're not seeing infertility with the disease, why would you see it with the vaccine? And that's something that we've seen, not just with this vaccine, but other vaccines as well, right? Yeah. So like, but they'll still push this thing. It causes infertility. I speak to a lot of people that are like, I'm afraid to take it because of the infertility issue. And I'm like, there's no infertility issue. Yeah. People catch COVID almost don't survive it, but still don't have issues with fertility. So we wouldn't expect to see it. So, you know, like in general, I would say that it's hard for the average person who is not in a specialty. We all, everybody on this earth has a specialty, something that they know a lot about, that they're focused on, that they do all the time, right? And it's hard for people that are not in that specialty to discern what's real from yeah. what's not real. And so I would say that like one thing which might sound harsh, but I think just like more people need to learn to kind of stay in their lane more, where like 
For example, when it comes to like the whole mask question, early on in the pandemic, I really tried to stay away from it because it's a physics question. It's not a biology question. I'm not trained in physics, you know, like it's not my expertise. So I can't really explain yes. particle dynamics and yes. like size. And I, I just listened to, to experts who were physicists and what they were saying about mask wearing. So that's one thing. I think more people need to learn to stay in their lane. We've seen this even with experts where like they might be clinical workers, but they don't necessarily understand virology well, or like virologists who don't understand immunology, immunologists that don't understand clinical practice. It's like, like everybody needs to acknowledge where their shortcomings are and what they don't know so, so much about. So I think that that's one thing that I would say to people who are like trying to work out what to do is that A, is the person that is telling you what to do, are they qualified to say the things that they should be? I mean, I'm going to take a jab now, but like, I've always felt quite, I'm open-minded and I have been open-minded, but like, I felt quite strongly that like, why would I listen to anything that RFK Jr. has to say? He's a lawyer. He's not a trained scientist. He's never offered me mechanism. Like yeah. he's never offered anybody mechanism, meaning like, I haven't seen yeah. anything where I could see him debate like the nuances of immunological mechanism. And then on top of all of that, you then hear that he mandated the vaccine at his own birthday party, even though he was selling a different story to other people. So I'm like, well, why would I listen to this person, right? Like, it, yeah. it just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't compete yeah. to me. So I would say that like, if someone is telling you not to do something, never get information from one person ever, go and look at what other people who are specialists in that field are saying. And just because they're saying something different, it doesn't mean that they're enlightened or they're so <laughs> brave. Like, do they have data? Yeah. Have they published yeah. peer reviewed data that you can follow? If they haven't, then that probably speaks for itself. Yeah. So like, just question the people that are like, telling you and if you're unsure just go and look at what the consensus is and I think that like that's where I've tried like with the masks thing I will like try to look at you know the consensus of what's going on and yeah. and, and so yeah so like I would say that like just question the people who are like giving you the information and and what their biases might be and then just try to pull on what like other experts are saying to understand where peer review is lying in terms of a lot of these issues yeah and I definitely love how passionate you are in this <laughs> You know, the field of immunology, I think, has rightfully so has gained so much more interest and respect and admiration of the public, right? Especially since the pandemic began, where it's like people look to you, you know, for answers to these questions that are usually met with guidelines that are ever changing. People end up, and, you know, I can't imagine also, I guess, how much stress it can cost to be like in a field where. Oh my gosh, this information could like save lives, literally, right? So, my question, aside from all of the scientific, aside from all the experimental, how do you decompress out of your immunological mind and given that? Um, I, as you said that, actually, I just got a cat who just jumped up on. <laughs> I know, I'm going to put him down in a second because um, and he's very excited. Um, so so in terms of decompressing, I, I, I love reality TV. I love The Real Housewives or anything on Bravo. I'm a big fan. Um, um, also on streaming services, I've probably seen it. I, I watch a lot of TV. Um, no, but in, like, I, you know, I, I try to spend a lot of time with my friends. My social network is very important to me. So I have lots of, like, close friends that I lean on. And um, I like to see them. The summer was amazing. It was really great to be out in New York. And, and traveling was really nice. But, yeah, I think there are, like, certain passions that I have. Like, you brought up one. I'm actually really into skincare. I really enjoy the science of it. Yeah, I love it. I think it's because it's so interesting. I feel like a lot of people just, I mean, that's changing now. But, like, just how scientific it is. Like, you have a problem and you can, like, brainstorm to flip it. It's just, it's very cool. I enjoy it a lot. And so, yeah, that's something that I like reading a lot about and, like, scrolling, yeah. scrolling yeah. a lot. I, mean, I, had, I had really severe acne all throughout high school and college, so... You know, when I was doing skincare, I just more of like, I need to get my face cleared. But now that I've reached a point where I'm like enjoying my skincare, I was like, this is how tenoin works. This is how alpha arbutin works. Oh, there's a spin barrier. You know, yeah. stuff like that. Like, yeah. And then there's a microbiome that can affect yeah. my skin. Yeah. yeah. And like, like on a tangent, but speaking of seed, right? When, when I was reading, I forgot how I stumbled upon Seed, but, well, I know I talked to Jared that we both know, but even um, yeah, once, yeah, yeah. yeah, I went to NYU with him, but even months before that, I was already checking Seed. I forgot how I stumbled upon Seed, but I think I was looking at the website and I was like, 
and we know how much of a scam, you know, like the whole wellness, multivitamins, and probiotic system. So I was looking at the website, I was like, holy crap, the amount of science and literature in this? Like, insane. Literally insane. Like, I really had to, I had to call my friends and be like, yo, look at this website. <laughs> like, oh, that's cool. Like, yeah. Like, crazy. And I guess that will lead on to my last question for you. Diverging from skincare, I mean, we talked about the microbiome, but and I know you love, you know, cheese cells, but is there a topic of research outside of your own that, I don't know, either you feel very hopeful about, or it's like, I don't want to spill, like, government secrets if there's, if there's any, but, you know, yeah. one that you, like, can't wait to see the results of that's currently being experimented or tested, yeah. Or even like take decades to come out. Yeah. It's a good question. It's hard because I'm I'm definitely biased and I wanna say because I think immunotherapy is <laughs> I was gonna say immunotherapy in general is amazing. It's so amazing. So this is like the field of trying to use the immune system, manipulating the immune system itself. So not dissimilar, I guess, to vaccines, but like using the immune system itself to prevent disease. And so Immunotherapy, for example, there have been a lot in the, in the context of cancer. I definitely work on it now, like in, in, the, in yeah, the company yeah. that I work for, Orionis. It's what we do. But immunotherapy is revolutionizing kind of cancer treatment. I mean, there are some cancers that if you talk to surgical oncologists, surgeons don't see them anymore. Like they don't see them at all in the operating room because immunotherapy has been so effective at preventing like the, the progression of the tumor itself. And it's a field that's moving really quickly. And so... Like one thing that's interesting, so I just to quickly explain something, when it comes to cancer, the reason why it gets a little tricky is because you're actually trying to do the opposite to what you do with you would do with like infections, because tumors, when they grow inside of you, they send signals to your immune system to say, I'm not here, I'm not here. So that's why, you know, you'll hear this trope where people will say, if you have a lump and it hurts, it's probably not cancer because cancer, like tumors are like sending signals to your immune system, say, I'm not here, I'm not here. And it's only when they start to get so large that they spatially take up a lot of space and they will like press on other things that you'll start to feel, oh, I have back pain or I have side pain. And then you'll get scanned and they might discover something. And so because tumors will send these signals to your immune system, it's really difficult to use the immune system against them. But now we have all of these, I mean, the Nobel Prize a few years ago was won because uh, a scientist discovered that like tumors, you can switch off the signals that they send to the immune system. And by switching off those signals, you'll see what, what the video that I posted where suddenly like T cells will like hive in and they'll start to like kill cancer cells. And so I'm really excited about the field of immunotherapy. Separately, I'm really, really excited about like, for example, physicists that are like developing better techniques for analyzing the immune system. So being able, like now we have techniques like single cell RNA sequencing yeah. where you can take tissue or you can take blood and then these will literally give you a map and you can see how much of each subset of cell you have and how they're interacting with each other. And then it helps you basically work out how to like intervene in terms of disease. Because one thing that we know, not just with COVID, but with most human disease, it's not one mechanism. It's rarely actually, I'll say one mechanism causes this disease. It's usually multi-layered. There are multiple mechanisms at play driving why someone gets sick. And so if we can understand exactly how immune cells are working in our body, and you can think of it like Wi-Fi, like they're interacting with each other locally, but also from a distance and sending signals across the body to like send signals. So like if we can understand how they're communicating with each other and manipulate that, we might be able to like target multiple mechanisms at the same time and start to see a lot of these diseases that we're scared of, like start to like decrease as we're seeing already with some cancers and surgery yeah. not even being yeah. required anymore. Yeah. Wow, the beauty of science, right? I know, it's, it's cool. Amazing. Yeah. And two cells. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I've learned so much and I'm so sure that, you know, so many people learn from this and I have so much hope for... You know, the life saving modalities, mechanisms of science, and I mean, we've come so far, like from decades and decades ago, and, and here we are. I mean, even if the, you know, our school is like evolving, evolving, it's like you learn something almost every day. Yeah. And it's also thanks you to scientists like yourself and specifically like yourself, you know, who generously spread this information to us and like in the forum now if you sitting down with me, speaking to me about all of this thank you so much and 
It is such an honor. I learned so much, and my brain is just like kicking. Learn more about yourself. No, thank you so much for having me, and also no. Christian. I mean, like you're you've been excellent for scientific communication as well. It's been really phenomenal to see it. So, like, yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate oh, yeah. it. Thank you. I'm just like you have. Question. You have a question? Okay, here's the first thing you should ask. You know, okay, here's another person you should ask. I don't know if you and, and one of them is you. So thank you so much. Thank you. It was so fun and so informative. I hope you have a great rest of the night. Yes, you too. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks again. Bye. Take care. Bye. We have now reached the end of the story. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Friends of France. I hope you had an enjoyable adventure learning about our expert guests, their work, and why they do the things that they do. Please check out the rest of the series available on all podcast platforms. Please also consider following the podcast on the platform that you prefer. Turn on the alerts for new episodes so you don't miss new stories. And give us a rating to support the show. You can find more updates on the podcast's official Instagram at Friends of France Pod or my personal Instagram at Chris Franz. That's without the I because there is no I in team. <laughs> I'm kidding. Someone already took the username. Have a great day or night, everybody.